Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture, and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and real estate agent at Renegade Realty Group here at Keller Williams. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, RDI is a local real estate investment and business group, and we meet monthly. Right now, we're meeting at Shields and Southfield. This group's about networking and doing deals. All right. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit, smell of stale coffee, been gay and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And RDI is also this podcast where we continue the real estate conversation as often as I can and hopefully more in the future. And if you're listening or maybe you're, you're listening online or your mobile device and you're ever interested in attending any of the local meetups, go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. All right. Legal disclaimer. Don't blame me, man. It's just the way the world is. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I or anybody else has ever said or will ever say on my podcast in real life or fake life be taken as legal or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions that you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals uh, and also maybe consider growing up. Uh, don't sue me. Be an adult. All right. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investor Show Quote of the Week, where I pick a quote that sets a tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And this week I went with something from F. Scott Fitzgerald. Vitality shows and not only the ability to persist, but the ability to start over. Vitality shows and not only the ability to persist, but the ability to start over. All right. And here we go after a, what, two-year delay? <laughs> Yeah, I'm setting some speed records over here. Um, anyway, we are back to the Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. And I believe two years ago, 2017, I started part one and we read through the first 60 pages. And uh, shit, man, I got busy. I learned how to be a listing agent, started my own team. Grew Renegade Detroit Investors, the crazy number of people. But I forgot about this book, and I love this book, and I want to finish reading this book. So here we go. Go ahead, and you're looking for The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. Go ahead and pull out your book, or if you got it on your Kindle, that's fine too. You know, get your highlighter. We're going to talk about some things, or your Apple Pencil, whatever you want to do, and go ahead and turn to page 60. All right. It says right here, the five myth understandings about the way you look at investing. Where did you get your earliest thoughts about money and investing? More important, what beliefs do you currently hold and are they accurate? I'm intrigued by these questions mainly because over the years I've become convinced that most of the myths about misunderstandings I've encountered about investing and financial wealth building come from people who've never invested successfully or built financial wealth. Isn't it interesting that so many of us accept and believe the words of others without first verifying that they've earned the right to teach us? In our research on these myths about investing, we went straight to the source. We talked to more than 100 millionaire investors about these very issues. We emerged what emerged were five common myth understandings about investing that can cause people to get off track. 
While these myths certainly apply to investing in real estate, they also transcend it and apply to investing as a whole. They can seep into any discussion about investing. They often are used as justifications for failure, and they are repeatedly or they are repeated widely in the form of cautionary tales. Investing is complicated, hard to understand, risky, inaccessible, requires perfect timing. They circulate quietly, are taken on faith, and for the most part go unnoticed, go unnoticed, which is why we call them the Phantom Five. You know what I'm talking about, man. Especially you come from like a poor background. Gotta have money to make money. That kind of shit. Investing myth. Number one, investing is complicated. Truth, investing is only as complicated as you make it. Here's the truth. Investing is complicated. But to be fair, almost anything taken as a whole can appear more complicated than it really is. Take your car. You don't have to be a mechanic or an engineer to drive it, right? Of course not. All you have to know are the basic rules of the road and how to drive. Investing is no different. The trick is to step back and identify the aspects that matter the most. In the end, I think you'll come to understand that the fundamental things you need to know and do to be successful are simpler than you might have imagined. It's like Warren Buffett says, you don't need to be a rocket scientist. Investing is not a game where a guy with a 160 IQ beats the guy with a 130 IQ. And out of the book, man, (laughs) IQ has nothing to do with this business. I, I, I know... There are people who are millionaires that I know who have very high IQs, and there are millionaires I know that absolutely do not have high IQs. And I might even say maybe even a little on the low IQ side. So, yeah, this is not a – he's right. Being successful at investing has nothing to do with how, quote, unquote, smart you are. Back to the book. Chris Hake, a millionaire real estate investor in Madison, Wisconsin, started out like most investors with books, audio cassettes, and seminars. He freely admits that there were there was more knowledge available than he could digest at once. But instead of being overwhelmed, he find a way to a way to deal with the new information. I just treated it like a buffet line. You use what you can. The rest of it may not apply today. I think he is absolutely right. What I have come to understand about investing is that it is always progressive. It builds on itself step by step. Fractions look like nonsense to a child who's not yet learned about them in school. That's why good teachers start by teaching the basics and then build on them over time. On a practical basis, what I know is that you never need to know everything in order to do something. You just need to know the right thing to do at any given moment. Over time, given enough chances to study and experience something, you naturally and progressively will learn everything you need to know to do it well. That is how you become an expert. Real estate investing is no different. When you learn things in the correct order, your knowledge will come more easily and more quickly. One of the core goals of the millionaire real estate investor is to provide the fundamental knowledge you need to get in the game correctly and lay a foundation for success. Like anything else in life, real estate investing is only as hard or as complicated as you make it. As Forrest Gump might say, complicated is as complicated does. Great investing can be learned if you take it slowly. Start with the basics and follow proven models. You know what this also reminds me of, too? I've run into a bunch of these people. The analysis paralysis, you know? That was never my problem. I was more like I thought about it and I acted way too rashly and quickly. 
Well, the other, what they're talking about here is where you, when you're talking about, you don't need to know everything to start. Maybe you're one of those people that think you have to know everything to start. And if I just one more course and as soon as I get my PhD, you know what I'm talking about. That's a myth too. All right. Back to the book, investing myth two: the best investments require knowledge. Most people don't have truth. Your best investments will always be in areas you can or already do understand. One of the great lessons I've learned about investing is this. Investing in what you don't know or understand isn't investing at all. Doing that is like taking a shot in the dark, and you'll need luck to hit anything worthwhile, much less your intended target. To me, the real nature of investing is always to invest what you know and fully understand. Choose an area that you already know or one that greatly interests you and commit yourself to becoming an expert in it over time. I love the story legendary investor Warren Buffett tells about the technology stock boom of the late 1990s. Rather than jump on the bandwagon where thousands of amateurs were amassing small fortunes, Buffett chose to sit it out, sit out the boom on the sidelines. He admitted that he just didn't know the industry and without no, without the knowledge, he essentially would be gambling. I love that attitude. Here's an investor who absolutely, no matter what the apparent upside is, sticks to his criteria. Buffett is an amazing investor. And one reason is for that he only invests in what he knows or can or understands. I encourage you to do the same thing. If you don't have specialized knowledge, pick an area and start learning today. I think you'll discover that investing in real estate is one of the easiest areas of investing in which to acquire expert knowledge and understanding. And I agree, man. Real estate investing in America is the people's sport, man. It's the people's business. Investing myth number three, investing is risky. I'll lose my money. Truth, investing by definition is not risky. If you look up invest in the dictionary, this is what you'll find. Invest to commit money or capital in order to gain a financial return. You'll notice that the word risk doesn't appear anywhere in the definition. Why? Because risk is what people bring to the concept of investing. I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but the truth is that great investors don't think of investing as risky. For them, it's not about ignoring risk. Instead, it's about following sound investment principles and models. By doing that, they take the risk out of the game. When I say investing by definition isn't risky, what I mean is that in investing, you'll make your money go on in. In most cases, this means buying something of value for terms that immediately generate a profit for you. This way, investors go into deals knowing they, this way, investors go into the deal knowing they don't need the market to bail them out. These are the no risk deals. Jerry Clevenger, a millionaire real estate investor in Kansas City, Missouri, told us about a deal that perfectly illustrates how investors make their money going in. One evening, a real estate agent called him at nine o'clock at night and said, Hey, I've been following this property that's been listed by the bank for 65,000. Well, they just dropped the price to 39,000. Clevenger immediately wrote an offer of 42,000 and his agent faxed it over to the owner's side unseen. He felt comfortable making this bold move because he understood he was buying and what it was really worth. And he was right. He quickly sold the house for 54,000 and pocketed the difference. He later told us, if I hadn't made the offer that night, I wouldn't have acquired the property because the next day, eight more offers came in. 
you got to be able to pull the trigger immediately. And to do that, you must know what you're doing. Investing like a millionaire real estate investor isn't about taking risks. It's about having sound criteria, the patience to find the right opportunity and the willingness to take the correct action quickly. The best investors know this and are dedicated to following this formula. As a result, they're always minimizing their risk while maximizing their return. Investing can never be absolutely risk-free, but it doesn't have to be risky. Investing myth number four, successful investors are able to time the market. Truth. In successful investing, the timing finds you. Timing is everything. But now that you know that, forget it because you can't truly time anything. This shit is so true. Yeah, I love this. Sorry, this is not in the book. Yeah, you're not fucking timing the market. You're not outsmarting the market. I've been doing this shit for years now. And the more I do it, the more I realize just how little I really know and how fickle the market can be sometimes. All right, back to the book. Timing is one of the most misunderstood concepts in investing. When people say that timing is important, they are correct. Timing is not only important, it's critical to investment success. The economy is cyclical. Markets are cyclical. And buying and selling opportunities are created by the ebb and flow of the cycles. Finding the best time to buy or sell is called timing. What is misunderstood is the way timing actually is accomplished. Most people think timing is about active observation, sitting on the sidelines, waiting for the moment when they should jump in and take action. It's a passive and then active approach. In other words, timing is about being reactive to the opportunity. The truth is, however, is that timing is all about being active, active all the time. I believe that the vast majority of opportunities cannot be observed from the sidelines. You must be in the game. The best deals come from the best opportunities, and the best opportunities go fast. This is where the phrase, a window of opportunity, comes from. Investors recognize and seize these opportunities because they are always engaged in the game and close to the action. I have no idea how to say this lady's name. Daichis Bodiford, a millionaire real estate investor from Marietta, Georgia, I apologize, lady, was watched and engaged, was watchful and engaged when he noticed, or that guy, boy, I really killed you, dude. He noticed the other day before a foreclosure sale of a bank had lowered its opening bid on a property by more than $100,000. He knew this because rather than taking the foreclosure information at face value, he called the bank to learn more about the property. Armed with that knowledge, he and his partner purchased a house at auction, put it back on the market, price to sell, and 90 days later made over $100,000 from the transaction. In retrospect, someone might say that Botterford was lucky or had great timing, but Botterford wasn't timing the foreclosure market. He was there every day, watchful for opportunity and ready to act on it when it arose. If you pursue opportunity in this way, you too can look like a timing genius. In fly fishing, they say you can't catch a fish with your hook in the air. That's also true of timing the market. Successful timing is made possible by time spent on task over time. You have to keep your hook in the water. Being active and engaged doesn't mean you're always buying and selling. What it does mean is you're constantly searching with your criteria. Watchful for the moment when opportunity surfaces. This is what I mean when I say... That timing finds you. Or you guys remember in Aliens 2? He's like, stay frosty. Yeah, stay frosty, motherfuckers. Stay frosty. Don't be sleeping on deals. I see it all the time. 
I, I, I like it when you guys sleep on deals because it makes more opportunity for me. But come on, man, get in the game. I don't really like it. I, I like the advantage. I want you to jump and seize on the opportunities too. Anyway, back to the book. You can never know the absolute best time to act except after the fact. Hindsight is, as they say, 2020. Better to look at it like this. Anytime an opportunity meets your strict criteria and you act, you have time to market successfully. Timing isn't about being at the right place at the right time. It's about being at the right place all the time. And I think this goes to even before, maybe you're just getting started in real estate investing, or maybe you did before and you got back out and now you're thinking about getting back in, you know, begin where you're at too. Are you seizing the opportunities in your current work job and the places in front of you? Are you seizing these current opportunities in your family right now or with your friends? I don't know. That's what, that's kind of what he's talking about. You know, you're just sitting back waiting, just watching shit go by. You know, you got to jump on some of these things and do them. All right. Back to the book. Investing myth number five. All the good investments are taken. Truth, every market and every time has its share of good investments. Boy, you know how often I hear this from the 2007, 8, 9, 10 REO days where people are like, yeah, not like back then. Or the people who said, yeah, but the reason why so-and-so is here, they did all that is because they bought at the right time. Yeah, back to the book. Rest assured, all the good investments will be taken. The only question is by whom? As simple as it sounds, the truth is that those who take them are those who best understand the conditions that create them. By the way, this is the other and more subtle side of the timing issue. While the previously discussed miss was about myth was about time in the market, this myth addresses your timing as an investor. A lot of people say to me, okay, Gary, now that I've decided to become an investor, where are all the deals? It seems like a few opportunities I've been able to find are already taken. Uh, like the people whining in the Metro Detroit Real Estate Investors Group. Yeah, anyway, back to the book. I understand what they're saying, and there are really two issues at work here. The idea that there aren't many deals and the idea that you're too late to get them. Here's what I know about market forces and how they create investment opportunities. There are two fundamental forces at work, economic ones and personal ones, and they are always present, always at work and always influencing the marketplace. Basic economic forces show up in the form of things such as job growth, interest rates, population shifts, and area revitalization. These are the things most people think of when they think of the forces that create investment opportunities. What is often overlooked, however, is a second set of human or personal forces that are always present and can create additional and significant investment opportunities. Some arise from positive circumstances such as a relocation, marriage, and family growth. Others arise from negative conditions such as divorce, death, and debt. In my experience, those who declare that all the good deals are taken are almost always overlooking the second set of human forces and unique opportunities they create. When I get in arguments with people about what the future is going to be, my, one of my main arguments is almost always humans will still be humans. Remember that, techies. Back to the book. What I most want you to understand is that opportunities are always there in every market in every time. Sometimes... There are a lot, and sometimes there are not. Some opportunities are the result of obvious economic forces. Others are the result of local and incidental personal forces. And you're never 
too late. Because personal forces are always at work, these opportunities are constantly being created. While yesterday's deals have indeed been taken, tomorrow's deals have not, nor are they destined to go automatically to someone else. But in time, they will be taken by someone, and I want you to realize that someone could be you. It's really a game of hide-and-seek, and if you choose, you're now it and must seek. The opportunities are gone only for those who assume they are. You're too late only if you believe you're too late. The Law of Momentum Compounding Your Success. In closing, let me encourage you to believe that everything big starts small. When most people consider investing for the first time, it is not uncommon for them to think, it will take forever for my investment amount to anything. When they consider their first investment, most people find it difficult to justify the time, money, and effort for the returns they can see. It can seem like madness to look so hard for a rental property that may yield only a couple hundred dollars a month. These short-term benefits just don't seem to balance out to short-term sacrifices. I strongly encourage you to step past the short-term thinking and look at the larger implications of small investments. What must be understood is there is a natural growth curve to momentum. Think of the ball rolling downhill that picks up mass and speed as it goes. It's what we commonly call the snowball effect. Although it may start out small or slow, it ends up growing quite big and fast. In the same way money, once invested, has its own momentum, and the technical name for that is compounding. What starts small and grows slowly builds and size momentum over time. My son discovered the power of compounding one Saturday afternoon when we were weeding the flower beds at our home. As we worked, we were listening to an audio tape about money and life I'd been listening to before he joined me. We were going along fine until I looked up and found myself all alone in the backyard. My first thought was that he'd gone in for water and gotten sidetracked. When I went in to look for him, I found him in the kitchen counter adding up a series of numbers on a piece of scrap paper. He was trying to disprove a story he just heard and couldn't believe. It was a classic story of the value of a penny doubled every day for 30 days that often is used to illustrate the idea of compound interest. In short, a worker is offered a reasonable daily wage for a month's work. Instead of taking the normal pay, the worker negotiates a compounding pay scale where his pay doubles every day but starts with just a penny. The employer quickly shakes on the agreement thinking he's getting a great deal. Unfortunately for her, as the story later illustrates, the 30 days of doubled pay that began with a single penny ended up with a total invoice of $10.7 million. I walked John through the numbers and assured him the numbers told the truth. This led to a great discussion of money and rates of return. Any form of investing is about putting your money to work and letting it work for you over time. Real estate investing is no different. What distinguishes it from other investments is that the original value of your asset tends to be large and, through the magic of leverage, can be purchased for less. For example, if you bought a $100,000 investment house each year by putting $10,000 down and achieved only a modest 5% rate of return on the total value of your assets, you'd be a millionaire in less than a decade. With each asset you add to your portfolio, your portfolio grows. As your investment grows, so do your buying power and your investment knowledge. That's the foundation for bigger and ever-increasing investments. No matter what your current station in life is, financial wealth is available to you. No matter how little money or knowledge you have in the beginning, 
a great ending is possible for you. The trick is to get started and then let the power of growth on growth take you higher. The longest journeys are just an accumulation of small steps. The tallest buildings are built by placing block upon block. If you're ready to take the next step on your journey to financial wealth, if you believe that is both possible and probable for you, it's time to leave your myth understandings behind, turn the page, and begin thinking like a millionaire real estate investor. Points to remember, many high-achieving investors have faced fears or doubts without investing that ultimately proved unfounded. These common myth understandings can stand between you and true financial wealth building. Examining them can ultimately free you to pursue your dreams. Yes, you do need to be an investor. Chances are your current job income and savings plan will not be nearly enough to build true financial wealth. Your job is your job. Building financial wealth is something else. Yes, you do need and want to be financially wealthy. Becoming an investor is about preparing for minimums and maximums in your life. Instead of forgetting your dreams and living within your means, pursue the means to live your dreams. Yes, you can do it. Don't play, don't place limits on your financial potential. I can't is just a rationale for not trying. Believe that true financial wealth is possible for you no matter where you are in your life. No, investing doesn't need to be complicated. It's only as complicated as you make it. Learn the basics and build on them over time. Great investing can be learned if you take it slow, start with the basics, and follow proven models. That last one is hard for a lot of people to do. It was for me too in the beginning. Follow proven models. There's a very strong desire to like want to be unique or think you're smarter or have arrogance or whatever. You know, start by following proven models. Yes, you must invest in what you know. Pick an area and become an expert over time. Real estate investing is one of the easiest areas in which to acquire this expert knowledge and understanding. It also means you're not going to be a flipper, wholesaler, or landlord right out of the gate. You got to kind of pick one until you're good at it and then do something else. Investing isn't about taking risks. It's about following sound investment principles and models, thereby taking the risk out of the game. Yes, timing is important, but it's active, not passive. Opportunities cannot be observed from the sidelines. You must be in the game. Timing isn't about being at the right place at the right time. It's about being at the right place all the time. Or like for wholesale, if you're trying to buy a deal from wholesale, why won't the wholesaler call and sell me the best deal ever? Because you didn't buy any of the other deals. Who do you think gets the best deal ever? I want you to really think about this. This seems to go over everybody's head. Who do you think gets the best deals ever? Who do you think I call when I run into those crazy deals? The person I've never done a deal with before in my entire life. Can't do it on the sidelines, man. You got to get in the game. No, the good investments are not all taken. Opportunities are always there in every market and in every time. Yes, they will all be taken by someone, but realize that someone could be you and should be you. Step past short-term thinking. Small investments can have extraordinary implications over time, thanks to the power of compounding. All right, part four, the four stages. Think a million. I have about concluded that wealth is a state of mind and that anyone can acquire a wealthy state of mind by thinking rich thoughts. Andrew Young. The spiritual journey of wealth building. It's my belief that the pursuit of money is actually a spiritual journey. 
That's a statement most people wouldn't agree with. In fact, they might even argue against it. Yet I know it's true. Would it surprise you to learn that the Bible has over 2,000 references to money, property, and wealth? That is more than twice the number of references to faith and prayer combined. In fact, money shows up as a prominent theme in every major religious text. No matter what your personal faith is, spirituality and money are always connected. It seems that God cares about how you think about money and wealth, and that makes perfect sense to me. Money, what you do to acquire it, how you hold on to it, and what you do with it reflects your inner most values. What you may not realize is that every time you open your wallet, endorse a check, or sign a credit card receipt, you're making a statement about your spiritual values. In other words, money spent is a personal testament. The receipt's absolute proof of your priorities. Money in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It simply has the power to reflect and reveal. And whether money reveals you to be honest or dishonest, generous or greedy, it is you, not the money, who inherently own these values. And if you're not religious like me, sometimes this uh, uh, stuff can be difficult to to read like this. But if you just pivot and think of it from a uh, uh, philosophical um, point of view, right? And how would you do that? Um, what they're talking about is actions, right? Belief is what you do. Do you really believe in something if you don't act like it, right? So what he's talking about here is you, you're spending your money or you investing your money or where you put your money. Your money is a manifestation of your previous work and savings and actions and then what you're doing with it That action is belief. So it is a vote, so to speak. So that's what I think he means by a spiritual, at least that's how I interpret it. If you're one of those people like me, I have a little hard time with that. Anyway, back to the book. I've come to think of money as being about having choices. Typically, the more money you have, the more positive choices you have. The two go hand in hand. The spiritual journey of financial wealth builders begins when they understand that their choices define their lives that having more positive choices is a good thing and that pursuing more positive choices is an enlightened pursuit. The millionaire investors we interviewed understood this and have taken care to square their financial goals with their spiritual values. While most set out on the path to financial security and prosperity, they all came to understand that the way they earned their money mattered and that mutually beneficial deals, a reputation for honesty and fair dealing were essential to the fulfilling pursuit of their financial goals. The further they progressed, the more generous they tended to be with their time, money, and financial wisdom. They talked about the satisfaction they received not only from successful deals, but also from saving people from foreclosure, putting people in affordable homes, and turning downtrodden properties and even neighborhoods into places where anyone would want to live. They also relate how the success of their personal investing had had created income and opportunity for their colleagues and partners. To sum it up, they had no hang-ups about money or wealth. They were experiencing the power of money and realizing all the good it could do. Over the years, I have come to understand that money is good for the good it can do. I encourage you to adopt that viewpoint as well, that money is good for the good it can do for you and for others. Financial wealth building is also about personal growth. Along the way, you'll discover that you have to acquire new skills and greater wisdom to keep moving forward. The simple truth is that if you don't grow personally with the growth of your fortunes, you'll unlikely 
you're unlikely to enjoy them for long. In the end, you can achieve a financial place of security and abundance that I call true financial wealth, where you have accumulated assets that deliver the passive income necessary to achieve your personal mission in life without having to work. To put it another way, you have financial wealth when you're finally free to stop working for a living and start living for your work, your life's work. In the following pages, we take a, take a deeper look at some of the ways millionaire real estate investors think about money, their motivation for sinking financial wealth, and their understanding of how it's attained. If you can tap into their mindset and grasp the fundamental principles of how to build, hold, and employ wealth, you'll have achieved the first major goal of this book, Thinking Like a Millionaire Real Estate Investor. The Seven Ways Millionaire Real Estate Investors Think Thinking is thinking. It takes just as much time and energy to think small as it does to think big. The only difference lies in the results you get. Most people don't truly realize this, and as a result, don't consciously choose the way they think. The Millionaire Mountain logo on the cover of this book is meant to symbolize the power of thinking big. It comes from a discussion of climbing Mount Everest I sometimes use to illustrate the path of high achievement. Going after big, audacious goals. People who set out to test the slopes of Mount Everest don't do so on a whim. It's a big goal and it requires big thinking. They study, plan, think strategically. Months, even years of preparation are involved because there's a lot at stake. One major misstep can result in falling short of the summit or even in disaster. There's just as much at stake in your financial life and becoming financially wealthy represents an Everest of sorts in the world of money. The journey is big and can be long, sometimes trying and often extremely difficult, but it is always worthwhile. Always. The best way to prepare for a climb to the highest altitude is first to acquire the right mindset and attitude. It's even been said that your attitude determines your altitude. That's why a substantial section of this book is dedicated to the way you think. It's about building sound financial thinking as a foundation for building solid financial wealth, enriching your mind and enriching your life. Consider this chapter, Think a Million, as your financial base camp on the path to climbing the millionaire mountain. It's a place where even the most competent and confident climbers can pause and listen to the wisdom of those who have reached the summit before them. It's time to examine the seven ways millionaire real estate investors think. Number one, think powered by a big why. Number two, think big goals, big models, big habits. Number three, think money matters. Number four, think net worth. Number five, think real estate Number six, think value opportunities and deals. Number seven, my favorite, think action. Number one, no surprise, action's my favorite, right? I don't know which one is your favorite. Maybe, I don't know, maybe leave a comment. I don't know if you care about that. I was just curious. Number seven's mine. Number one, think powered by a big why. In Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill wrote, What a different story men would have to tell if only they could adopt a definite purpose and stand by that purpose until it had time to become an all-consuming obsession. Motivation matters. Napoleon Hill believed it, and so do I. In fact, this is something I learned a long time ago, and ever since, I've made it my practice to study the lives of successful people to discover their motivation to achieve. I clip news articles, read biographies, and watch documentaries on their lives. 
What I try to decipher from their individual stories is a common pattern for achievement. What did these people do differently? Were they smarter or better educated? Did they come from higher achieving families? Were they exceptionally gifted or hardworking? The primary characteristics I've found in the lives of high achievers is they have a strong desire to succeed. They had a compelling personal reason to achieve. It's what I called a big why. One of the many articles I clipped was from a management study in which the authors made an interesting discovery. When tested in national surveys against seemingly crucial factors as intelligence, ability, and salary, level of motivation proves to be more significant component in predicting career success. The authors went on to state that while the level of motivation was strongly correlated to individual success, it didn't matter where the motivation came from. In general, I found this to be true so long as the motivation is powerful and lasting. The millionaire real estate investors we spoke to while researching this book shared with us the facts that their motivation arose from a desire to be free from their jobs, have more choices in their lives, achieve self-actualization, and gain the security that comes with abundance. They shared a similar drive to reach for their potential, asking questions like, how much am I capable of? What's possible for me? High achievers, millionaire real estate investors are powered by a big why. Striving to be your very best will have you following in their footsteps on the path to big success. A big why can redefine your life in ways you might not have ever imagined. But to qualify as a big why, your motivation should move you from thinking in terms of electives to acting in terms of imperatives. What I mean is that you must stop thinking of success as something you want to achieve and start feeling that it's something you need to do and, in fact, have to achieve. Life is very different when you move from want-tos to have-tos and truly significant big why causes you to make that transition. Are you plugged into your big why? Are you tapping into the energy it can bring into your life? Chances are you're reading this book for a reason. You probably have a strong motivation for seeking financial wealth. I encourage you to take a moment to reflect on the things in your life that motivate you the most. Try to think beyond material goals. You may be working hard to pay off college loans or credit card debt or maybe even get a new family car, but as big as those things seem now, they're really short-term sources of motivation. Any benefits you receive from a focus on them today are unlikely to outlive your achieving them tomorrow. Maybe your greater motivation is financial freedom. Take a moment now and write down your thoughts. What are your big reasons that drive your choices you make? When you're finished, look for a natural hierarchy. Do some things to motivate, do some things motivate you more than others do. Is there a higher motivation beyond what you've written down? Ask yourself, what would that choice do for me? What would it mean to me to have that or do that? What would it allow me to become? Do your best to rank all these things in terms of their importance to you. Man, he really like, really like, really, really lays it out, doesn't he? Just, uh, I don't know. Does that seem oppressive? Maybe not. I don't know. Fuck it. Go for it. Back to the book. Hopefully at the top, there is something along the lines of, I want to be financially wealthy as I can be, or I want the largest life possible for me. Big whys related to achieving your highest potential are, in my experience, the most powerful. Reaching one's personal 
financial potential is a limitless pursuit. After all, there's no cap on that potential. This is important because the power and reach of your motivation often dictate the level of your success. Having no motivation will lead you nowhere. A small source of motivation will bring you small success. Big success, in contrast, requires much, much more. It requires a big why, an evergreen and ever-growing big why. Maybe I'll attempt to simplify it a little bit, although I'll not probably do it the way he said. But um, if you're not excited to wake up early and stay up late, you're probably doing it wrong. So... All right, back to the book. Although apparently they're like all chatty Kathy in the office today. In the end, you shouldn't be too judgmental about your honest answers. Your highest and best calling is your highest and best calling. It's not comparative and it's not competitive. Life isn't and neither are your reasons for living it. The goal of this exercise is simply to look for and articulate the factors that drive you to take meaningful and persistent action. One of them are put on paper and written in your heart, and they will become a powerful guiding force in your life. The natural next step is to ask yourself, do my professional goals line up with that vision? What's the best way to finance my big why? Are my relationships in line with these goals? What you'll discover is that a big why brings clear answers to those probing questions and helps you see how the life choices you're making help or hinder you on your quest. Possibly the most tangible gift of a big why is that it requires and enables you to prioritize your needs as well as your choices and actions that will fulfill them. Simply put, when you say yes to one thing, you're clearly saying no to anything that works against it. If your big why is to seek the limitless opportunities that come with financial wealth, you'll suit you soon may realize that some of your current spending decisions are working against your long-term financial aspirations. Keeping your focus on the big prize is a great way to avoid missteps and distractions. It's like the Olympic athlete who tapes a picture of a previous gold medal winner to her bathroom mirror to remind her why she is rising before and on the train for hours while her friends are still in bed. All great achievements are the results of sustained focus over time. All of them. A big why brings incredible power and enormous stamina to your financial focus. And big financial success requires that. Number two, think big goals, think big models, and big habits. Life is too big to think small. If you want to lead a big life, your thinking has to lead the way. I can't tell you how many times in the course of our research we heard the refrain, I wish I'd started sooner, bought more, and sold less. Even our million millionaire real estate investors realized that as big as their thinking had been, they could have thought even bigger. They understood that the size of their financial lives had been determined by the size of their thinking. I believe in thinking big, but I also know that's not enough. Without big goals, big models, and big habits, big thinking may be wishful thinking, and by itself, wishful thinking isn't that useful. There's only one small difference between living a great life in your head and living a great life in reality, and that small difference makes all the difference. People who lead great lives allow their big thinking to direct them to action. And countless big thinkers have lived before us. Trails have been blazed and paths cleared, twigs have been broken, and breadcrumbs dropped. Clues have been left and X marks the spot. The big models and big habits they discover on the path to their big goals have been left for us to learn from. Not learning from their methods, reinventing the wheel, is a monumental waste of time. Life is too short to move slowly. 
It's been said that if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And interestingly, the opposite is equally true. If you know where you're going, there is a best path for getting there. The gift of discovering your big why is knowing your ultimate destination and being driven to reach it. However, the challenge of big why lies in finding the best path to get there. For the millionaire real estate investor, finding that path is about two things, establishing big goals and acquiring big models. Big goals force you to restate your big why in specific and measurable terms, and big models represent the proven systems and activities that will get you to those big goals. If your big why is to achieve financial independence, you'll have to take the abstract concept and quantify it. Then, faced with a specific financial goal related to your big why, the question becomes, how do I achieve that? The answer is found in proven big models. In the context of this book, I'm advocating that you adopt the big goals and big models of a millionaire real estate investor. There are some subtle but powerful lessons in the chart above. If you follow the arrows and go through the different levels of achievement, it appears that the various levels are just milestones on the way to the models and habits of millionaires. Sadly, life doesn't work like, work like that. The truth is that each level is more like a box created by thinking and habits that form an end rather than a means. And rather than being a stepping stone to the next level, the box you're in becoming a barrier to higher achievement. You have hit dead end before you realize it, and unwittingly so. That's the danger of limited thinking and the box your habits will create. And the figure they're talking about is on page 84, and across the top it says, Big goals and big models build big habits. And it's a square. And inside there's other squares inside the square. And net worth is on the y-axis. Time is on the x-axis. All right, so you got net worth going up and down, time going straight across, right? And then big models and big habits would be on the positive side, right? So heading up. And bad models and bad habits is on the negative side going down. All right, hopefully... It's easier if you're looking at the book, but uh, just think network, you know, we want positive net worth. So we want to go up and the longer time, the higher it goes up and the better and bigger your habits, the more it goes up. And then the worse and poorer your habits, the more it goes down. It's just a simple chart. I hope anyway, back to the book. Specifically, if you follow the models and actions that lead you to $5,000 in net worth, they are not likely to allow you to go beyond that goal to, say, $175,000. The things you would do to get to the higher level would be very different. In a sense, by following the $5,000 model, you have created for yourself a low ceiling or at least a box with a very tight lid. It's the difference between long-term and short-term thinking. While most people would say, They want a great life. They rarely plan beyond the current year. As a result, they choose a financial model that fits only their short-term goals, and that financial short-sightedness can be devastating to their long-term dreams. Interestingly, those numbers aren't random. The 2001 survey of consumer finances by the Federal Reserve documented that people who rent have a net worth of less than $5,000, while a typical homeowner has a net worth of a little less than $175,000. 
That illustrates the stark difference between financial models and habits of renters and those who own their own home. In contrast, following the truly big financial models that can take you to $1 million in net worth will pull you through the lower levels. It's the power of future pull. It's the power that comes from following the big models and developing the big habits to implement them. You're so focused on doing those things in a matter that will get you your big goals that you're pulled right past the smaller ones. This is the real magic of big goals and big models. What's up, Jay? When you follow the big models and millionaire real estate investors, you will find your day-to-day activities begin to mirror those of high achievers. Over time, those big models will cease being guidelines you follow and become the habits that power you through your day. Habits as well, as we all know, are hard to break. And so it's truly wise to build the best habits from the beginning. The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote, The second half of a man's life is made up of nothing but the habits he acquired during the first half. The models in this book are about acquiring big financial wealth habits for your life. Big goals, big models, and big habits. Number one, big goals, the specific measurable targets that fulfill your big why. Number two, big models, the proven system and strategies for reaching your big goals. Number three, big habits, the consistent actions and right choices that come from following big models. There's no such thing as a neutral habit. Habits are either good or bad. They either lift you up or drag you down. The financial world, the models you follow, and the habits they form are either addictive Additive or subtractive, which is why the chart we have been discussing includes negative net worth models and habits that are opposite to the positive ones. Good habits put money in your pocket and bad ones take money out. But even good habits can be a handicap if they are small and box you in a certain level of accomplishment. Those who take the incremental approach and start with small habits will find that the real challenge lies not in adopting new goals and models, but rather in breaking their old habits and forming bigger and better new ones. Think big goals and big models from the start. The big habits you will have to build will serve you at every level of financial achievement along your journey. Not only will they guide you toward the most appropriate actions to achieve your goals, They tend to protect you from the mistakes people with lesser goals, models, and habits make. Would you rather make a millionaire mistake or a rookie mistake? There's a big difference, and in the real estate investing, a costly mistake in the beginning can knock you completely out of the game. Big goals, big models, big habits do more than just direct you. They also protect you. In addition to guiding you to do the right thing, they keep you from doing the wrong thing. Millionaire real estate investors have big goals. They seek out big models to attain them, and over time, they enjoy the gift of big habits to drive them toward their financial destiny. And when this is all powered by a big why, there's a little that there's little that can hold them back. I guess I can maybe succinctly say too, uh, what got you here won't always get you there. All right, number three: think money matters. We all have a fundamental choice in our financial lives, the path of earned income or the path of unearned income. In other words, you can work for money or money can work for you. On one path, you get paid only for what you do. On the other, you get paid no matter what you do. 
One path is well-worn and the other is largely undiscovered. Somehow, some way, the concept of building financial wealth, the past the path less traveled has fallen through the cracks of our collective consciousness. As important as money is in our daily lives and as powerful as the concept of financial wealth building is, most people have not taken their financial education seriously. Millionaire real estate investors, however, are different. For them, money matters. What is almost universally considered an elective is for them a prerequisite course for life. By choice, they're students of the financial wealth building game. At a certain point, these investors grasp that understanding money paid dividends in their lives, big dividends. As soon as they made that connection, the pursuit of the knowledge of money, its history, its rules, and its disciplines become a primary focus for them. They sought mentors, read books, listened to tapes, and attended seminars. Now you would say podcasts. Uh, They set out to get a superb home school education in financial matters and received the equivalent of a master's degree in money. Wendy Patton. Hey, we know you. Hey, Wendy. A millionaire real estate investor from Detroit, Michigan, got her start when her mom gave her a set of real estate investment tapes. Later, a $39 course on lease option formed the basis of the investment strategy she successfully used for 15 years. Now she collects them. I bought every course I could find. I have at least $50,000 worth in my library. The goal of this book is to get you on a positive, life-changing path to passive income as quickly as possible. At the end of the path is a place called financial wealth where you have enough money working for you that you no longer have to work for money. But that kind of passive income doesn't happen by accident. You first have to get educated and then make investing a priority in your life. That education begins with the money matrix. The money matrix. Most people are in the dark about money. They live from paycheck to paycheck in a twilight world with only the dim candle of conventional financing thinking to light the way. As a result, they have a kind of financial short-sightedness that present, that prevents them from distinguishing between good and bad financial decisions. It's time to throw some light on the subject and illuminate the way wealthy people think about money. The most powerful model for understanding the use of money and building of financial wealth is the money matrix. It tells the story of how the rich get richer and the poor get poor. It helps people identify whether they are investors or consumers and whether their money works for them or they work for money. The two pyramids in the money matrix, one pointing up and the other pointing down, reflect contrasting financial priorities of investors and consumers. The essential difference between the two is the importance they place on the four roles of money. Capital, money invested in anything expected to grow in value. Cash flow, money generated from those investments. Cash, money held in reserve for security and future investments. Consumption, money spent on anything not expected to grow in value. And if we look at the chart, it literally is a pyramid. It's just literally two pyramids, right? So at the base of the pyramid going up is capital, cash flow, cash consumption. So the base is built upon capital. The next base is cash flow. After that cash, and at the very top, he gets to consume, right? The other pyramid is the reverse, and it's negative. The base is consumption, then cash, then cash flow, then capital, right? 
investors build their financial lives on capital while consumers build theirs on consumption. It's a little like the old Sunday school song about building your house on the rock instead of sinking sand. Investors understand that your first financial priority has a cascading effect on your financial life. In other words, what you do with your money in the beginning will dictate what you're able to do in the end. It's about your financial priorities, what you actually do when you receive money. While investors see money as an opportunity to invest, consumers see money primarily as an opportunity to spend. As a result, while investors are generating money from their investments, consumers are at best saving money for security. Later, while investors are setting aside more money for future investments, consumers are trying to wring some return out of their modest savings. Finally, while investors are free to spend all that's left, consumers are struggling to invest the little that is left. When you invest in capital first, an amazing thing happens. Slowly but surely, your money starts to work for you. Amazingly, your money is now making you even more money. And each year, as you invest more of your income and capital, the cash flow it creates grows in significance. Suddenly, you find that you're well along the financial wealth building path of passive income, figure six on the page. And an ever-increasing percentage of your income is being earned by your money, not by you. The game millionaire real estate investors play is to see how much unearned income they can generate from their investments. In the end, it all comes down to a person's ability to prioritize investing over spending, to value capital more than consumption. Many of the millionaire real estate investors we interviewed reported making some short-term sacrifices for long-term gains while they were building a foundation of financial wealth. Not only did they invest a relatively large percentage of their earned income, they also overcame the impulse to squander any extra income generated from their investments. Instead, they reinvested the lion's share of their cash flow into additional capital to accelerate the financial wealth building process. That was when their investing process took on a life of its own. It seemed that the more capital they owned, the more capital they could afford. Reinvesting your cash flow creates a financial wealth building machine that feeds itself and has the potential to grow exponentially over time. Consumers, in contrast, have it all backward, and that is why they live for shadow wealth. We call it shadow wealth because when you live a life of consumption, it can give the appearance of wealth without any of the substance. It's what the authors of The Millionaire Next Door refer to as big hat, no cattle. <laughs> That's funny. Big hat, no cattle. All right. All talk, right? In the or like these Detroit houses where you go, it's like a fucking fifteen thousand dollar house with eighty thousand dollar car in front of it. Yeah, cars depreciate. In the context of the book, it's a big house, no investment, or even worse, big car, no house. I should just wait till I got there. These are the individuals who may have high paying jobs but have failed to get their financial priorities in order. They have they see having money as an opportunity to spend first, spend second, and spend last. They get their values from the media and spend their money accordingly. In short, they allow consumption to dominate their thinking. And with no capital to serve as a financial foundation, at the end of the day, they are a pink slip away from financial distress and maybe financial disaster. Living life as an investor means first living a life of less consumption than the media would have you believe you should. It requires listening to wisdom, not the world. Got to sacrifice, folks. Although an emphasis on consumption hinders your ability to build financial wealth, 
Consumption is not entirely a bad thing. After all, the goal of wealth building is to create a big enough foundation of capital and cash flow that your consumption needs are met without you having to work. Consumption has two distinct forms. On the other, on one hand, you spend money on yourself to satisfy your needs and wants, but on the other hand, you can spend money for the benefit of others. I'm talking about taking care of your loved ones and, of course, making contributions to charity, which in my mind is the highest and best use of money. Charity is a kind of capital investment for the soul that pays real dividends in your life and the quality of all life. When you view your financial decisions through the lens of financially wealthy half of the money matrix, you start understanding where your money comes from and where it goes. You begin to recognize the natural cycle of growth when earned income is invested and capital that creates cash flow, which can then be reinvested in more capital for more cash flow. It's like compound interest with a turbocharger. Ask yourself this question. In which half of the money matrix have you been living? Does your income go straight out the door in the form of consumption, or do you always designate a substantial portion of your earned income for direct investment into capital? I can't overemphasize how important it is to take a moment to understand the money matrix. Your financial priorities can make the difference between achieving true financial wealth and falling prey to the allure of living in a world of shadow wealth. Number four, think net worth. Every day, an undeclared game is being played out. It is a serious game of individual achievement with both winners and losers. Whether you realize it or not, you are a player in this game. It's the personal game of financial wealth building. And if you want to win and win big, you have to know how to keep score. The question is, do you know your score? One of the great lessons I carried away from my breakfast with Michael was the knowledge that the wealthier conscious players of a financial wealth building game that they play it strategically and will keep score by carefully watching their net worth. <clears throat> Each year, Forbes magazine devotes an issue to ranking the wealthiest people in the world. By the way, can you guess what they use as a yardstick for financial success? Interestingly, it's not annual income. They believe that the best and most definitive measure of financial wealth is net worth, the sum total of an individual's assets and liabilities. In personal terms, your financial wealth is your net worth, which is what you owe, which is what you own minus what you owe. I didn't always understand this. In fact, like most people, I probably placed too much importance on my earned income when I should have been tracking my assets, capital, and my unearned income, cash flow. I later learned that the trick to financial clarity is to look past your earned income to your unearned income and then beyond to that underlying source of that unearned income. While almost Everyone who talks about investing emphasizes cash flow. People probably don't place as much importance as they should on the origin of that cash flow. Without a doubt, achieving positive cash flow from your investments is critical to long-term investment success. But let me ask you this. Do you know where your cash flow comes from? Cash flow comes from capital, which is the basis of your net worth. I would argue that the fundamental wealth building number you should focus on and track is your net worth. It's the golden goose. This insight changed the way I looked at my personal finances. And on Michael's advice, I started keeping score. Together, we took a standard bank loan application and used it to create a list of all the financially significant things I own. Stocks, bonds, real estate, furniture, car, etc. And then we subtracted all my various debts and liabilities. The final number was my net worth. Each week, I'd update my net worth sheet. And when Michael and I met, we would ask one simple but profound question. 
what's the best way to make that number grow? Through this weekly process, I discovered that knowing your net worth while an eye-opening process is really only about half the battle. The greatest clarity comes from comes when you also track your net worth over time. When I did that, I started to notice which financial decisions had the greatest positive impact on my financial wealth. As a general rule, investing made my net worth go up and consumption made it go down. Sometimes when I thought I was investing, I really wasn't. I discovered that not all assets are created equal. Some appreciate while others depreciate. For example, when I purchased a car, even though it was an asset, it was a depreciating asset and my net worth went down. In contrast, when I invested in real estate, an appreciating asset, although I incurred debt, my net worth went up. I started to take a closer look at all my assets to see whether they were true investments. When I discovered was that even my own home, which I originally treated like an investment, was in fact an appreciating asset. My home mortgage turned out to be a little like a forced investment plan in my real estate, with each payment increasing my equity and lowering my debts. Most people don't think of their home as an investment when they buy them. It's only later, after a few years of appreciation and equity buildup, when they say, my house was the best investment I ever made. I would make the case that owning a home might be the most important accidental asset most individuals ever acquire. In fact, the data collected by the Federal Reserve in the last four surveys of Consumer Finance Report certainly supports that argument. The millionaire real estate investors we interviewed made thinking net worth a habit. They also grasped the effect home ownership has on net worth and were compelled to ask the following questions. How much faster would my net worth grow if I owned more real estate? How fast would it grow if someone else paid down the mortgage? What if the rent they paid more than covered the property's expenses and generated positive cash flow? In answering those big questions about their wealth, they started down the path to becoming a committed real estate investor as they are today. They began to live in a world of intentional investments, not just accidental assets. What became clear to them and is clear to me is that once you think, begin to think net worth, it's only natural to be, think real estate. Number five, think real estate. Your government wants you to think real estate. Actually, the government not only wants you to think real estate, it wants you to own it. In fact, it needs you to do that. The point was driven home for me during a taxi cab ride in Florida. The driver was from Chile where he heard when he heard I was in real estate, he told me a remarkable story about how the Chilean government had launched a housing program in the 1970s to revitalize the economy. The idea was to make housing affordable to more middle-income and lower-income buyers, which would allow them to build equity. The program was based on the well-documented effects of housing affordability and ownership in the American economy. Home ownership and the resulting expenses of maintaining a home, fixing it, and furnishing it are widely considered the largest and most important category of spending in the United States. That's not all. Home ownership also helps launch small businesses by allowing would-be entrepreneurs to borrow against the equity in their homes. My cabbie was articulating the economics of property ownership in a way that very few people do. I enjoyed the conversation and hate to see it end. When I got home, I looked it up and discovered the story didn't end there. As it turns out, the housing reforms in Chile were so effective that Ecuador implemented a similar program in the 1990s. 
In a white paper on the subject, the economist Hernando de Soto observed, the critical difference between successful capitalist societies and those that are not is their ability to create wealth with private property, especially land and housing. Its effect, historically and globally, free market societies foster and protect real estate ownership because it can underpin a society's ability to build financial wealth and prosperity. That is why millionaire real estate investors think real estate for building their personal financial wealth and prosperity. Our research and experience show that no other investment has had the consistent and powerful an effect on the average person's net worth as real estate ownership. In fact, as real estate historian Dana Lee Thomas revealed, the oldest fortunes in America have come from the land. Unlike Europe, where most of the valuable acreage has been held and passed down by nobility for centuries, American real estate has been open to virtually anybody with the daring and ingenuity to possess it. With that powerful insight in mind, let's take a moment to run through some of the many advantages of investing in real estate that led millionaire real estate investors to refer to real estate as their most able investment. For starters, real estate is remarkably accessible to investors. Not only is it easy to understand and easy to find, more significantly, it's easy to finance. In addition to a wide variety of conventional and government-supported mortgage loan programs, there are many sources of private and owner financing. In the end, there are real estate financing options for every type of property and almost every type of buyer. Low income to no income, poor credit to no credit, little to nothing down, you name it. There are typically no insurmountable financial barriers to entry. The biggest reason for this is that real estate provides significant insurable collateral for any mortgage, no matter who the lender is, institutional or individual. When loans are secured by real estate, lenders feel, well, secure. This is what you see when you look at the big picture of investing, and that's a huge reason why real estate remains so accessible to all. The second thing that makes real estate an able investment is that it's appreciable and increases in value over time. This is due to two primary factors. First, general inflation drives up the replacement cost of housing, construction materials, and labor, and therefore the value of real estate. Second, there is the influence of supply and demand. As the population increases, so does the demand for housing. This makes sense, as research shows, in the modern era of real estate consistently has increased in value at a rate of about 6.1% a year, outpacing inflation by an average of 33% a year. Trammell Crow, one of the most successful real estate investors ever, once, once famously declared, the way to wealth is debt. What he was bluntly describing is the third area that makes real estate an able investment. Real estate is leverageable. The 6.1% appreciation rate mentioned earlier may not seem like a lot, but that figure is actually a little deceiving. It doesn't take into account the fact that practically no one pays all cash for a home or a real estate investment. In reality, almost everyone finances most, if not all, the price through a mortgage. As a result, people get the benefit of the appreciation on the full value of the property, while only having to invest a relatively small portion of the purchase price. For example, a person may have put down only $30,000 on a $150,000 house. If that property had appreciated 6.1% to $159,150, the $9,150 gain should be weighed against the $30,000 investment, not the $150,000 price. 
A gain of $9,150 on $30,000 translates into a 30.5% interest rate return on investment. Because real estate is leverageable, millionaire real estate investors know they can achieve rates of return not commonly seen with other investment vehicles. When we talked about real estate with a noted economist, Harry S. Dent Jr., this is what he had to say. The most important thing about home ownership is that it's leveraged. When you look at your net investment and the return on that, homes can certainly compete with the stock market. In 1936, Harry Helmsley, one of the country's largest landlords, bought his first property for $1,000 down and a $100,000 mortgage. He sold it 10 years later for $165,000. Leveraging an investment doesn't get much better than that. The concept of leverage doesn't work only when you purchase property. Once you build up an equity position and an investment property, you can leverage that investment for cash in one of two ways. You can secure a secondary loan against the increased equity or refinance the original loan amount plus the increased equity. Remarkably, the leverage advantage can work two ways. You can buy a property for dimes on the dollar and you can convert any equity gains into cash without selling the asset. The next major bonus of real estate is the cash flow can generate. Real estate is rentable. It continually amazes me that I can purchase a property and then turn around and rent it to a person who will pay down my debt in exchange for living there. In reality, that's what renters do. They pay your mortgage, which builds your equity. They call it forced depreciation, right? Um, if you bought the property right, they provide you the opportunity to get unearned income in the form of the positive cash flow. When you took when you take a look at the total return from real estate investing, you have an opportunity for an investment triple play appreciation, debt pay down, and positive cash flow. The last two come from your ability to rent the property. Interestingly, history has shown that despite local periods of fluctuation, over the long haul, rents have increased. According to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, rents have been appreciating over the last 30 years in an annual rate of 5.3%. Millionaire real estate investors understand this and know that although rents tend to be cyclical, they rise over time. One of the unique and attractive advantages of real estate is that it's improvable. Because real estate is a tangible asset made of wood, brick, concrete, glass, a millionaire real estate investor knows you can improve the value of any property with some tools and a little elbow grease. Whether the repairs are structural or cosmetic, whether you do it yourself or hire someone else, the principle is the same. It's called sweat equity. You also can increase the value of the property in a more subtle way by changing its zoning or use. Converting vacant lots into parking lots and converting apartments into condos are a couple common examples of adding value through creativity. Actually, this is another form of sweat equity. It's just more mental than muscular. This is what the millionaire real estate investors love about real estate. They can use their hands and use their minds. Their investing can even take on the aspects of the game in which each property they attempt to discover its hidden value. When they find that hidden value, they buy the property, improve it, and reap the financial reward. In the end, real estate offers investors a unique opportunity to affect, to affect their investments directly. This is an area where personal time and energy can really pay off. If you ever needed proof that the government wants you to own real estate, look no further than many tax benefits government has given to it. The three that stand out the most is that's deductible, depreciable, and deferrable. 
Millionaire real estate investors are well aware of these tax advantages and take advantage of them all. You could say that they see real estate in 3D. The first D deductible reflects the fact that tax laws allows, allow various deductions for the normal expenses incurred in owning real estate, such as property upkeep, maintenance improvement, and even the interest paid on the mortgage. Millionaire real estate investors use these deductions to offset their investment income and in some cases their personal income, thus reducing their overall taxes. The most important of these deductions comes from the second D, depreciable. What's interesting is not only does tax law allow you to depreciate your investment, it requires it. Simply put, things are presumed to wear out and lose value over time. The government expects you to account for that wear and tear, whether it's actually happening or not. By claiming an annual decline in the value of the building, its contents, and any improvements. Millionaire real estate investors love this tax break because it allows them to reduce their taxable income through depreciation, even when a property is increasing in value through appreciation. The third term, D is deferrable. Tax law allows you to use IRAs, 1031 tax exchanges to buy and sell investment real estate while deferring the tax hit to more advantageous times. IRA funds can be invested in real estate as long as any profits from the rental income or property sales remain in the IRA. Those profits are tax deferred. The 1031 tax exchange gives you a choice at the moment of the sale either to realize the gain and pay taxes on it or reinvest the gain in another property and defer the taxes. And when you choose to reinvest, the transaction is treated as if you simply exchange equity in one property for equity in another. The government has established these tax-deferring vehicles as a way for investors to reinvest real estate profits without having to pay the taxes until later. Millionaire real estate investors believe that taxes deferred until tomorrow are always better than taxes paid today. As a result, they make use of these programs to preserve their profits as they go, giving them more to reinvest and accelerating the growth of their real estate portfolios. U.S. Appeals Court Judge Learned Hand once observed There are two systems of taxation in our country, one for the informed and one for the uninformed. I agree. When it comes to taxes, there are two kinds of people, consumers and investors. One group avoids planning for taxes and the other plans for avoiding taxes. One sees doing their taxes as a painful chore that costs them money and the other views their tax work as necessary tasks that saves them money. Consumers think of tax refunds as found money they didn't have. Investors see tax refunds as evidence of money they overpaid. When you connect tax work to the money you save versus the money you pay, thinking about and working on your taxes cease being so painful. It's still work and it doesn't have to be your work. Accountants will do it for you because they're the only ones who think tax work is fun. In the end, the three D's, deductible, depreciable, deferrable, are about reducing your taxable income. No investment does that better than real estate, which offers unprecedented tax advantages both while you own it and when you sell it. Millionaire real estate investors also count on the fact that real estate is quite stable. It's slow to rise and slow to fall. It doesn't surprise you, and better yet, it doesn't shock you. Uh, Nicholas Racinus, director of Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies, noted, From 1975 to 1998, only 14 of the country's largest metro area experienced price declines of 5% or more over a three-year period. 
unless you overpaid walking in. If you're prepared to live through the cycle, you're probably not going to lose money over the long haul. In other words, the real estate market is predictable for anybody who's paying attention. You can see it coming and you can see it going. Statistically, economists rate the volatility of an investment through a measure called the standard deviation, which in this case is the percentage of investment of an investment's value will go up or down on an average given year. From 1973 to 2003, the standard deviation for real estate was four point or was 4%. In other words, real estate values have fluctuated up or down by only about 4% each year. On the graph, real estate values look like a series of gently rolling hills. In contrast, over the same period of time, the stock market had a standard deviation of 16.8% which looks more like a jagged electrocardiogram printout. The facts speak for themselves. Real estate is more stable. But let's be clear. This is not a discussion about rates of return. It's about day-to-day risk. Figure 16 on the facing page, which illustrates the differences in various portfolio investment portfolio mixes, drives this point home. You can see that when real estate is included in the mix, the standard deviation, the volatility and risk is minimized. This happens because of the remarkable stability of real estate prices. While this doesn't mean you should avoid other investments, it does mean you should include real estate in your investment portfolio. And that's exactly what millionaire real estate investors do. The last thing that makes real estate an able investment is that it's livable. It is quite literally the only investment vehicle that you could put a roof over your head. The point is included not for the sake of cuteness, but to make a point that many that many millionaire real estate investors made to us. The home you live in can also be an investment. The second you start thinking of it as one. The trick is to start seeing your home for everything it can be. It's more than just shelter. It's a foundational piece of your financial wealth building program. That's the way I look at it when I bought my first property. I was in my early 20s and needed a roommate to afford it. Later, I moved out, moved a tenant in, bought a second home, and moved my roommate with me. This is a great formula for me and one I could repeat. I was buying shelter and an investment, and because I understood the real estate game, I got both houses for no money down. Many of our millionaire investors shared with us the fact that they also began their investment careers by moving into a home, fixing it up, and then renting it out as they moved into the second home. They took care of a life necessity by launching an investment career. It was a strategy they could use at any time and as often as they wanted. Here's the bottom line. This can happen only with real estate. Combine all these reasons, you'll understand why we believe real estate is a most able investment. Note that this discussion is not intended to disparage other investment options. While I created a lot of wealth through real estate, I've also made great amount of money investing in business ownership as well as traditional books or traditional stocks and bonds. I am an investor. I use all these vehicles, but just like the millionaire real estate investors we interviewed, I appreciate the unique advantages of real estate. The challenge you may face is that these many advantages of real estate may be overlooked by traditional investment advisors. For example, to my knowledge, there is not a single popular financial magazine or business paper with a regular column dedicated to active ownership of real estate, of investment real estate. Any real estate articles that appear in this publication tend to coincide with downturns in the stock market, which often push traditional investors into the real estate market. 
I don't fault these magazines. They are, after all, businesses, and as such, they write for the investment markets that attract the most advertising dollars. The unfortunate net effect, however, is a marginalization of real estate investing. Because it's not commonly written about or discussed in financial publications, investors may not realize that real estate is a credible option for them. If you've never considered real estate in the past, I hope you think about it now. Our millionaire real estate investors chose to think real estate, and that's how they became millionaires. Number six, where are we at? How much time are we in? Uh, We're only an hour and 23 minutes. We'll keep going. Number six, think value, opportunity, and deals. Almost anything worth doing has a process. What the millionaire real estate investor revealed to us was that their thinking followed a process that in the end instructed their actions. The truth we discovered was that you have to know values in order to recognize opportunities and have to find opportunities before you can do deals. That makes sense because you don't just go out and do deals. You can't really make a deal until you've found an opportunity, and you can't really know if it's an opportunity until you understand value. It's that simple. The millionaires follow a simple process, and that process works. Curiously, none of the investors we interviewed articulated these three important concepts as a detailed process, but as they described the way they went about their business and made the decisions, the process became apparent. And we began to see the simple wisdom and brilliance of it. We came to understand how it saved them time, reduced their risk, and kept them focused. That's why we need to emphasize it here. It is how they think, and it does make a difference in the results they achieve. Successful real estate investing begins with identifying value. How do investors identify value? That's easy. They look at real estate. They look at a lot of real estate. They look very carefully at a lot of real estate. I wish I could tell you there was a shortcut, but there's not. And I caution you against trying to create one. When you are starting to learn the value of real estate in your area, you will need to look at a lot of real estate. I can't even tell you how many fucking comps I've run. Thousands of comps. And I still don't know everything I need to know. I probably never will. Back to the book. As you carefully begin to get a sense of what people are asking and what people are willing to pay, you gain a sense of market value. What's worth what? This applies to both sales price and rental rates. These are the two big variables in the, in the value equation. The more you look at properties, the more you sense, the more your sense of value becomes accurate and internalized. This way, when you come upon an available property, You'll be able to determine quickly what price will make that property worth pursuing. This is where opportunity shows up. Every opportunity is not necessarily a deal. What turns an opportunity into a deal is that the property meets your criteria and the seller is willing to meet your terms. Millionaire real estate investor Bodiford put it very well when he said, deals aren't found, opportunities are found, deals are made. I love that. Deals are made. In the buy a million section of this book, we'll walk you through the aspects of criteria and terms. But understand this. It is your growing awareness of values in the marketplace, the clarity of your criteria, and the ability to obtain favorable terms that make this process so powerful. The underlying key to your thinking is that you know there is a process that works. No value. Find opportunities. Make deals. No value. Find opportunities. Make deals. You could do this right now at your work. Maybe you want to get a raise at your work. You can. You can just something I did um, at Safeway was take over 
uh, the commercial bread. So where all the bread comes in, you got to do all the ordering. Safeway did all their own ordering and I, nobody would take responsibility for it. We wasted a lot of bread. I took responsibility for it, made some opportunities and got myself a raise. All right. Number seven, think action. My favorite. No more fucking sitting on the sidelines. Get in the game, bro. All right. My father was a good investor, a lifelong educator. He had a modest lifestyle and used his savings to invest carefully in rural land and residential real estate. However, after a while, he became impatient for bigger returns on his investment of time and effort. And as a result, he made his first speculative investment. It was also his last. He was invited to participate in an opportunity that involved converting an abandoned drive-in movie theater into a parking lot. The outcome hinged on the city adopting the site for its park and ride program. But soon after the purchase, the deal went sour. The city opted for an alternative site, and the property continued to yield negative cash flow with no end in sight. Because my dad didn't have deep pockets, he couldn't hold on. In the end, his partners released him from his obligations, but he lost his entire investment. To his credit, he told me the whole story and didn't sugarcoat it. His early real estate investments paid my and my sister way through private college, but this one bad deal knocked him out of the real estate investment game for life. It's a hard lesson all would-be investors should learn. Impatience, or worse, confusion, can lead you down a path from which you may not be able to recover. I would also say pretending to know shit you don't know. I did that. I see you guys arguing in the Metro Detroit Real Estate Investors Group, fucking pretending to know a bunch of dumb shit you don't know. So, sure, you know how I know? Because I did it too. Jesus, we're all human. Back to the book. When it comes to making money, I think most people don't realize that they are impatient and confused. What they're confused about is what it really means to be an investor. As a result, they may never take action, or if they do, they take the kind of confused action that can lead to financial disaster. Millionaire real estate investors are not confused. They understand that investing requires action. More important, they also understand that successful investing requires the right action. That when we, that's what we mean when we say millionaire, that's what we mean when we say that millionaire real estate investors think action. In the course of our research, we talked to hundreds of would be investors. Some were moving toward their goals and others were still learning the game. It became clear that those who had become the most successful had at some point made a crucial decision. They decided to take action. They said to themselves, I know enough to know I'm heading in the right direction. I need to get started and then keep learning as I go. These investors, those investors understood that investing in real estate is without a doubt a game of acquired knowledge and more important, a game of knowledge required over time. They also knew that no reading list and no seminar schedule could equip them for the task. Some things are learned and refined through doing. You learn more by doing, at least I do. If you take a step back and look at this from a distance, you'll see that there are four basic ways people approach investing. Most are observers. Some are speculators. Others are collectors. And a few are investors. Observers love the idea of investing, but out of fear, buy nothing. Speculators love the action. In their impatience, may buy anything. Collectors love ownership and, for self-gratification, buy something. Investors love opportunity and, in their wisdom, buy the right thing. Observers can have all the mental qualities of a great investor, but without action, they end up witnessing success instead of experiencing it. 
They are the bystanders on the sidewalk, the speculators in the stands and the backseat drivers. I've known some incredibly knowledgeable observers. Having read dozens of books on investing and attending numerous seminars, they get investing. But what they don't get is that all the time, money, and energy they invested in their learning will never earn them a financial return if they don't make investments. For some reason, they haven't found the motivation to go out, take action, and become an investor. This is the way it seems to go with observers. Because they study it all the time, they think they are investing, but they are not. Speculators aren't afraid to take action. In fact, they love action to a fault. These are the high rollers, the thrill seekers, the lottery lovers, the gamblers. They confuse risk-taking with investing, and their risk tolerance may border on risk numbness as they pursue their dream of big, fast paydays. The trouble is that speculation is by definition a matter of taking above-average risks in the hope of achieving above-average returns. It's buying something on the basis of its potential selling price rather than its actual value. Uh, I have a, I talk about this with investors all the time. Sometimes it gets a little heated because we start talking about up and coming neighborhoods or whatever. And like the future, it kind of happened too with like when Ford bought the train station and all that jazz is like, well, in the future, it's going to be worth so much more. I was like, well, yeah, probably. I mean, well, you want me to argue with you? Probably, but it, it's not now. And that's, that's the point they're making. The actual value now, unless you have a fucking time machine, right? And that's what you go on, right? Speculation is what you might think the value is and, and doing it solely based on that. A classic example of speculators in action was the 1636 Amsterdam tulip bulb craze. To make a long story short, imported tulip bulbs at the time were the exclusive province of Holland's wealthiest collectors. Sometime around 1635, speculators got involved and started buying the bulbs, not for their gardens, but for resale. That small amount of pressure on a market already short on supply soon forced legitimate tulip bulb vendors to bid against one another and drive up prices. Before long, a public market was created and prices of different bulb varieties were tracked publicly in taverns and meeting places. Soon more speculators began to take advantage of the pinched market, further driving up prices. Then the market shifted from trading real bulbs, which can be pulled only in season, to trading promissory notes for bulbs that would be dug up at a later date. This is important because notes began to be bought on a margin, 10% down, 90% on delivery, and traded multiple times from origination to extraction. One could call this the credit card effect since the notes buffered prospective buyers from having to fork over all actual cash. This opened up the tulip bulb market to everyone. For a period of about two months in late 1636, the market exploded as the Dutch middle class dived into the fray looking to make fast fortunes. Ordinary people mortgaged farms and homes to buy single bulbs worth as much as a year's income. But as quickly as a rush for riches began... It ended. Frustrated merchants threw up their hands and stopped buying the overpriced bulbs. A full-on panic ensued, and in a matter of days, bulb prices plummeted 90%. The financial damage was so widespread that the government had to declare all tulip bulb, con tulip bulb contracts written during the craze null and void. Change the commodity from tulip bulbs to land, 
and you can rewrite this story for the great Florida land boom and bust of the 1920s. Make it stocks, and you have the internet boom and bust of the late 90s. I think we could say real estate boom too, right? This book was written before the 2008 crash, but we could insert that one in here, right? The story is played out time and time again in markets where prospects for quick and apparent endless appreciation have encountered speculators to put down real money for products and artificially inflated values they have no desire or ability to hold for the long term. This is the way it seems to go with speculators because they might make money. They think they are investing, but they're not. Collectors make up a third broad group we have identified. You don't have to have books of stamps and a drawer of fabulous art on your wall to be a collector. A collector is simply someone who buys things on the basis of their emotional value rather than their investment value. It's emotional value first and investment value second, if at all. Think Beanie Babies. Collectors buy for love, status, aesthetic gratification, and pleasure. As a result, any financial aspects of the deal become an afterthought. This is the way it seems to go with collectors because their collections may go up in value. They think they are investing, but they're not. Investors are a breed apart. Unlike observers, they take action. Unlike speculators, they minimize risk. Unlike collectors, they buy on the basis of the current investment value. Investors are defined by their expectations for financial gain and the process they follow to minimize financial risk. They make it their practice to study and know market value, and they go out to find assets priced below that value. They don't count on appreciation to bail them out. They make their money going in. Like a bargain hunter, they find as much joy in the search for a bargain as the transaction itself. Because they think and act like investors, they tend to achieve excellent returns on those investments while exposing themselves to little or no risk. Investors follow a straight and narrow path, straight in that they move from knowledge to action and narrow in that they're minimizing risk and maximizing return. It's a way of thinking and a way of acting. This is true north and a financial wealth builder, the investor. So, that you can understand what happens over time, this path widens a bit. With a certain amount, uh, with a certain amount of wealth, your options increase. One sees this with successful investors. And what we have here is, let me see if I can describe this. <clears throat> so we have a drawing. So think of the x-axis, um, right? So the horizontal, right? And the investor would be a straight up and down Y axis. Calculate, uh, collectors and speculators would be like at a 45 degree heading out. So, and then the observer is basically at zero, right? Because they're not doing anything. And obviously the investor is the highest. Um, anyway, hope that helps. It's on page 117 if you want to take a look at it. So. They may move a little to the left or right of the narrow investment path, but they've earned that right. They can afford to do a little speculating, to seek a greater return, and collect to store some wealth, but they never stray too far and never confuse speculating or collecting with investing. When Warren Buffett, having made his fortune, bought a corporate jet, he didn't try and hide the truth. He appropriately named it the indefensible. He could afford it. He bought it, but he couldn't justify it as an investment. May we all have the clarity of Warren Buffett. While I believe that everyone has the potential to become an investor, the truth is not everyone will. In my experience, you can walk up to anyone and ask, 
would you like to be wealthy? And I'm certain his or her answer will be yes. However, most people won't achieve it for the simple reason that they are wishful instead of willful in their thinking. This difference makes all the difference. While the wishful enjoy the idea of big financial success, the willful enjoy the actions that lead to real financial success. Some people have a life just in their head and some people just have a great life. It all comes down to how you think and whether your thinking naturally leads you to take action. It's thinking for the sake of doing instead of thinking for thinking's sake. Don't just think about it. Go do some shit. Millionaire real estate investors are not the kind to get lost on the sidelines. They watch the game unfold, and as soon as they feel they understand what's going in, they dive in and play. They think action. They take action. Nina's rule. Watch your posture. Nina's a good friend and personal trainer. Shared with me the fact that one of the first things she works on with her clients is their posture. That surprised me because I would have thought the first thing she'd teach them would be exercises. When I asked her to explain, her answer was remarkably simple. Simple Posture is exercise. And our posture in daily life, the way we sit at a desk or stand in line, has a big impact on our physical well-being than we can imagine. It is, it is more important exercise for our health, she explained, than the crutches we do, we do or the weight we press. Crunches we do. Sorry. The crunches we do. That makes more sense. <laughs> while, the best, uh, while the best of us work on our muscles a little each day, our posture is at work 24 hours a day. Medical research supports her point of view. Posture has a measurable, profound impact on a person's health. The challenge is that posture is unconscious, a habit. Unless you're thinking about it actively, you aren't usually aware of whether you got your shoulders square and your back straight. If you just sat up straight in your chair after reading that last line, welcome to the club. Thus, Nina's first job is to ask her clients to start paying more attention to their posture and in doing so, build stronger, healthier bodies. Since the habits, even physical ones, are the product of one's focus and thinking, one could say that an able body is a product of an able mind. Nina sold me on the principle, and I've come to think of it as Nina's rule. What's surprising is how applicable it is to your financial health. To reinstate Nina's rule in the context of personal wealth, your ability to build financial wealth is determined as much by your everyday financial posture as by your not everyday big financial decisions. I'm talking about the unconscious and seemingly inconsequential spending decisions you make on a daily basis. These little decisions set the stage for your big decisions. And they're habit-forming. Most people don't make this connection. Warren Buffett put it best when he said, there is a tendency with a small decision to think you can do them for not very good reasons. The truth is that as an investor, all your financial decisions, big or small, should be for good reasons. In the context of this book, you need to develop the financial posture of a millionaire real estate investor, the unconscious habits that guide you all day, every day. This doesn't necessarily mean you're actively working on your investments all the time. What it does mean is you always have your mental habit. You always have the mental habits of an investor. It shows up in how you manage your money and how you look for opportunity every day. Here's what I want you to begin to do. In the grocery store, at the gas station, basically anytime you find yourself with credit card in hand, I want you to do two things. First, say to yourself, I'm an investor, not a consumer. Is this the best use for my money? Am I using my money like an investor or like a consumer? When you find yourself comparing price and value, hunting for the best buy, and being willing to walk away if you don't find it, congratulations, you're beginning to think like an investor. 
you're a shopper, not a buyer. You're treating your small financial decisions the same way you treat your big ones. Nina's rule not only applies to your spending habits, it's also about building the mental habit of always being on the lookout for opportunities for investments. This is not just a once a month or once a week activity. It's an everyday posture. It's always being alert for investment opportunities and consistently letting others know that you are. It's about top of mind awareness. It's about everyday posture of an investor, just as your physical posture leads to physical health, your financial posture will lead to financial health. Developing the seven thinking habits of an investor, making them part of your everyday mindset is foundational to building foundational financial wealth. All right. Points to remember. The pursuit of money is a spiritual journey. Money reflects your innermost values and has value to reveal you. And if you have a problem with that, uh, what you do is what you believe, right? Money is also about choices. The more you have, the more positive choices you have. True financial wealth is a place of security and abundance where you are finally free to stop working for a living and start living for your work, your life's work. Motivation matters. Discovering your big why enables you to prioritize your needs as well as the choices and actions that will fulfill them. It brings power and stamina to your financial focus. Thinking big is not enough. You need big goals, big models, big habits to drive you towards your big why and protect you along the way. For millionaire real estate investors, money matters. They take their financial education seriously and make investing a priority, and so should you. Understanding money will will pay dividends in your life. Understanding the money matrix is imperative to your education. Are you an investor or a consumer? Investors build their financial life on capital while consumers build theirs on consumption. In the end, either you work for your money or your money works for you. The best and most definitive measure of financial wealth is net worth. So in the game of financial wealth building, keep a scorecard. Track your net worth over time to see which investments have the greatest positive impact on financial wealth. No other investment has had such a consistent, powerful effect on an average person's net worth as real estate ownership. It's attainable, appreciable, leverageable, rentable, improvable, deductible, depreciable, deferrable, stable, and livable. Real estate is the most able investment indeed. Real estate investment thinking follows a process, a process that saves time, reduces risk, and keeps you focused. Simply put, You must know value to recognize opportunity, and you must find opportunities before you can do deals. Investing requires action. Successful investing requires the right action. Observers, speculators, and collectors are not true investors. Investors take action, minimize risk, and buy based on investment value. They are a breed apart. Follow Nina's rule and develop the financial posture of a millionaire real estate investor. Little decisions set the stage for big decisions. So build and be conscious of the right kind of mental habits and those that will lead to financial wealth. All right. That puts us on page 122. I think that's enough for this week. I'm getting a, I don't know. My eyes kind of hurt from reading. That's all right. So we're going to start next time on page 123 with buy a million by a million. All right. Where are we at? 
Yeah, hour and 46 minutes. That's about right. All right. All right, folks. So if you don't have this book, by the way, it's The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. Go on to Amazon or go to your local bookstore and buy it and read it or get the Kindle version, right? Um, I think it's one of the best books out there and we're going to, we're going to finish, uh, we're going to finish reading it. See what you think. All right. Uh, first of all, thanks for tuning in guys. Thanks for waiting two years for part two. Isn't that fun? There you go. You gotta be patient with me sometimes, you know, but I will get there. Um, if you like and enjoy the podcast and you want to help out the podcast, right? First, you can rate and review on iTunes. Really appreciate it. You'd be surprised how much that helps. Obviously, you can share the podcast with others. I would love if you do that, especially in my anti-guru campaign. Share and maybe listen to it yourself and do it, right? You can hire me to list or sell your house for top dollar. If you live anywhere near Southeast Michigan, hook a brother up. I would love the opportunity to help you out. You can also hire me and my team to help you buy a home, either for your personal residence, you know, like for your family or for an investment, right? Or maybe you know someone so you can refer someone to me, right? And of course, you can always send me all your best wholesale deals. So renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash renegadedetroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. Send me an email, jeremy at renegadedetroit.com, or you can always call or text 313-600-2133. Also, I missed the last podcast. I forgot. Sorry, Joe. A little shout out to Mortgages by Joe Randall, two L's, in the show notes. It's a beautiful podcast table that I get to have my guests on and sit down and work at and read. It was paid for by Mr. Joe Randall. So... And he uh, does a lot of investor loans, primary loans, all sorts of stuff. Mortgages by Joe Randall. Thank you, sir. And uh, as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. There are distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits. You know what? Fuck them all. Pick a goal. Stick with it. Do something every day to get you forward, even if it's just one step. All right. Till the next podcast. Till the next meeting, crush it.